We're going to be starting in chapter 2, verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. It was written a long time ago, but when God wrote it, he wrote it with you in mind, as well as all the saints in between then and now. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? 
What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice and you And the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Let's pray. Oh God, give life and light where our view of you is small. Please correct it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you woke up this morning and checked the news at any point, you check the news to bad news, and I think that's probably true for most Sundays. This one in particular. Just a matter of days before the anniversary of the Boxing Day tsunami in Indonesia, there was another one last night. Don't know if you watched that one. This one was not nearly as bad. The one that happened on Boxing Day a decade ago or so, a quarter of a million people were extinguished in the space of about seven minutes. A quarter of a million people passed into the life to come in, like I said, about seven minutes. It was documented. People had cameras out. They were confused. It was the first tsunami of this size that had been, uh, I guess, had happened since people had access to cell phones and things where you could record easily. The one that happened last night was gruesome in a different sort of way. It hit in the dark, so you couldn't see it. You didn't know it, but it still got documented. The one that uh, I woke up to this morning was the video uh, of a concert taking place not too far from the shore, and as the band is performing, suddenly the back wall just explodes in, and the entire venue is washed away. Uh, Hundreds dead, thousands still missing. 
Again, nowhere near as bad as it was a decade ago, but still terrible. If you've been in this church for a while, you know my fascination with waves, big waves particularly. I've used sermon illustrations of rogue waves, those that hit in the Caribbean and other places that just out of nowhere, a hundred foot wave can hit the largest of ships and sink them. These tsunamis are captivating in a different way. Hundred feet big, but not the way I was taught when I was a kid. When I was a kid taking oceanography in sixth grade, we learned about these seventh grade, these waves were really tall, 100 feet tall, and they're not. It's actually much worse than that. They're 100 feet deep. The length of the wave is huge. They're not actually that tall. They're maybe as tall as this room. I mean, maybe not much taller than that. The problem is, is that the wave comes in. It just keeps coming in and keeps coming in and keeps coming in and keeps coming in. And then it sits for a second and then takes everything out with it. It's amazing to think about that the wave that hit on Boxing Day a decade ago or so, we're still having stuff wash up from it now. Things that got sucked out to sea in Southeast Asia are washing up in California still from that. The videos of it are just staggering. It's sickening. But as you watch them, there's a sense of, I've watched all of them, (laughs) of just being overwhelmed. Not with just the sorrow, not just with the loss, but it's one of those great kind of occurrences where you get to understand how small we are. That thing that makes up like 80% of our bodies, water, when it comes in the right quantities, it's fatal. That's amazing when you think about it. That the very thing that is required for us to be alive, the very thing that we're primarily made out of, kills us when done wrong. And I love watching it in terms of these waves again to see the scope of them. How big, how much water is moving. This one, they think it's actually from Krakatoa, not Krakatoa, but the sister of Krakatoa, that there was a slight, slight underwater landslide that was just enough to push the wave and wash away thousands of people. Chapter 3 in the book of Exodus should, in some way for God's people, function a little bit like the videos of those great tragedies. Being made in God's image, we have meaning, we have value, we have identity. But chapters like this remind us not quite to get so big for our britches. They add a sense of scope, a sense of of size and grandeur, a sense of scale. Passages like Isaiah, that's why Robert picked it, passages like Exodus 3, function like God taking his people to the lip of the Grand Canyon and saying, how big are you now? Tell me again how big you are. Tell me again how powerful you are. Tell me again how great you are. You see, this far into the book of Exodus, it's been basically a a string of just disappointments after disappointment after disappointment. 
you would hope that it would go well. Genesis ends with maybe a touch of hope. They've come into Egypt. They're, they're thriving. They're prospering and just crash and burn from there. Their prosperity turns into slavery. Their slavery turns into even worse slavery. It turns into murder from there, and it's just the wheels come off. Until God provides with Moses, and you think, oh, yay, here's our guy. Here's our hope. Here's the Redeemer. Here's maybe the one that was promised in Genesis 3. Oh, man, before we can even get his word, his name out of our mouth, he's already killed somebody. And you're like, well, that was a short-lived run as a Redeemer. Short-lived run as a great guy. Chapter 2 ends, as we found last week, with Moses hiding in the middle of the desert. He's living in the house of a pagan priest. He's married to a pagan woman. He's living in the middle of nowhere, hiding from Egypt. But verse 25, but God saw, he saw the people, people of Israel and he knew God has not forgotten. His plan has not been foiled. It's not that he has been frustrated. He knows exactly what is going on and he's still at work. And you get to chapter 3. Begins with Moses out. We find out now what he's done with the rest of his life. You remember he was 40 when he killed the man and had to flee Egypt. Now he's 80. And in that 40 years, he's learned a new profession. He's gone from being one of the greatest in the land of Egypt. He was raised in royalty, raised in the royal house, and now he's a shepherd. And oh yeah, by the way, Egyptians hated shepherds. They were the lowest of the low of the low. Pick whichever job you think of, don't say it out loud, pick whichever job you think of as the lowest, most disreputable kind of job, and for an Egyptian, that's a shepherd. I hate them. And here's Moses, middle of nowhere, pagan wife, pagan father-in-law, pagan family, tending sheep. Heads away from home, a week's journey or so, takes the flock out, out into the wilderness so they can eat on the hillside. Get the good grass or such that's growing on the side of the hill. And you get to see already the way the grammar works here. Something strange happens. Moses looks up and he sees a fire. I'll be honest with you, when I was in high school, that was when the Lord of the Rings movies came out into college. I, I really debated seeing them. I loved reading the books as a kid, and I was terribly afraid that if I watched the movies, it would limit my imagination. And you know what? I was 100% right. It has ruined my imagination. And I don't, don't always enjoy those books nearly as much. There's a great danger that all you're seeing at this point is Yule Brenner, and I guarantee you he does not do it justice. <laughs> Moses looks up and he sees, we get to see from the grammar, there's two aspects to the wonder that he sees. One is the fire itself is bizarre. We don't know what that means. He doesn't give us the details, but behold, it's a weird fire. It's enough that it catches his eye and he's like, that's really strange. 
And he stands there and watches for a while. And as he watches this weird fire burn in this weird bush, the bush doesn't go away, which normally happens when fire burns in a bush. You get this kind of moment of of just confusion from him. Something odd is happening on the mountain. And so he says to himself, I'm going to go check it out. I'm going to go check it out. Verse 3, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Oh, yeah, and also, why the bush isn't consumed? Again, both elements. Weird, fire, amazing thing, something. I I want to ask him when I see him in glory what exactly it looked like. And then the bush itself wasn't consumed. Now, obviously, the Lord's been using this. He uses it like a fishing lure. Right? Good fishing lure, a lot of times in a stream, it has some part that flashes to catch the fish's eye. So the fish is like, ooh, I want that. God has done the same thing with his man here. Using something that flickers and flashes, only God being infinitely more powerful, actually uses fire itself. That thing we could barely control, he uses perfectly. So Moses turns aside, wanders out. And at this point in the story, it's designed the way that Moses is recounting his actions. It's designed to feel mysterious. It's designed to feel a bit confusing, a bit overwhelming. And as he walks up, the really disturbing thing happens. The fire starts talking. Now, fire is already a bit of a, a you know, confusing thing. It's burning differently. The bush isn't being consumed. Again, things you don't really want to see when you're out thousands of miles and thousands of years from the nearest fire department. And then when it speaks, it would be particularly disturbing, but even more so when it speaks your name. The fire starts talking. Moses. Moses. Come here. Okay. This is the point at which, again, like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you think, man, this is not in my realm of understanding of things that I'm able to process. It's too out there even for me. So Moses turns and starts walking, starts looking and moving toward. Here I am. I love it. What else do you say when the fire starts talking to you? Okay. Verse 5, God says, uh, now stop. That's just far enough. Because Moses, what you don't understand is when you wandered onto this mountain... This is the mountain that currently is the place where God lives. And because God is holy, this mountain is holy. And the fire is holy, and the bush is holy, and you're not yet. Oh, no. Oh, oh no. Oh, oh, this is a problem. The fire is talking. The fire is acknowledged. It's the living and true God. Using the rest of the story, we can kind of put it together. Verse 2, it's the angel of the Lord. That's usually a, a key catchphrase for identifying that it's the person of God. But I'm going to suggest, and I go with Calvin here, that it's the Lord Christ pre-Jesus incarnation. It's the second person of the Trinity. 
It's a great Christmas occasion here of best kind. Take off your sandals. The ground on which you are standing is holy ground because this is the place where God is in the meantime, in this moment in time, residing. And then he identifies himself. I am the God of your father. And again, this would have rung really an interesting kind of emotional process to go through as he's married to a pagan woman living in a pagan man's house. I'm the God of your father. Oh yeah, by the way, not the fellow's house you're living in. Not the house you were raised in. I'm the God of the man whose genes you share, whose house you shared for three and a half years or so, maybe four. I'm the God of his fathers. I'm the God of Israel. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of the promises that I made to them, that I would raise them up, that I would rule and defend them. I am the God of Israel. And I like how Moses tells it, that's the moment he realizes, oh, things aren't going well for me at the moment. You do have to wonder about Moses at points, that is he a little bit slow? Verse 6, that's where it notes that Moses hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. God is marvelous. He's wonderful. He is grand and holy. And I will be honest with you. I try to be uh, a little bit transparent in terms of sermon preparation along the way. There are passages that I struggle with to understand them. That was the uh, birth narrative of Moses. There are passages that are hard to preach because they're just awkward preaching on giving because so much of what you give supports me and my family. I'm not sure there's anything harder to preach on than God's transcendent holiness. Because as Americans, we just don't believe in that anymore. We don't really believe in the sacred, and we don't, I mean, I guess ourselves, uh, we don't really believe in anything great and grand anymore. I mean, just to watch how disrespectful we are as a nation towards authority figures now. Just in general, pick, pick any authority figure and watch how disrespectful we are to them. We don't really have a category anymore. We don't really have a sense of, of holiness anymore. Of, when you think of the word holy, that's a, a word we use in church language, but it means it weighty, set aside, separate, and different. And when it says God is holy, it means that he's different from me, but he's, he's separated, he's greater, he's grander, he's heavier weightier, more majestic. And again, trying to figure out how to explain that in modern kind of American terminology. We don't have a category for that anymore. I mean, you hear stuff said like, well, it's nothing sacred anymore. Nah, that's actually the problem. In our current land, nothing is sacred anymore. And so when it comes time for us as American evangelicals to understand the scriptures, God's holiness is just lost. That's why I resort to waves in the Grand Canyon. 
because we don't have a category for an authority figure that's so respectful. It's terrifying to be in their presence. I mean, that, that happened in centuries past, in cultures past. I mean, you go see the king, ooh, that's scary. I worry about us when we go to understand passages like this again because we are so reductionistic and we, we understand the closeness of God so well. We've forgotten how completely other he is. Perhaps maybe the best illustration of it is for those that have been or were married maybe that first, maybe second year in where you kind of realize I genuinely have no idea what's going on in that other person's head the vast majority of the time because they're so different from me. Now, having a wife so mysterious and complicated and complex, how other. Except here, it's not other that's just simply different. It's other that's so holy it should kill you. And perhaps maybe a, another illustration would be if somebody were to drop a gigantic poisonous snake in your lap and the amount of respect that would instantaneously well up inside you. Again, you, you see what I'm doing? I'm trying to illustrate that we, we have to go to nature. Because our current culture, we've lost this. The church, we've lost this. And the problem is that when we lose this, this understanding of the greatness of God, the next set of verses really lose their punch. Because at the end of verse 6 here, Moses is in hiding, which is comical because he's hiding from a bush that's not moving. He's in hiding, and he's in hiding the way that little kids do when they're hiding from the things that scare them in the dark. They pull their blankets over their head and think, oh, I'm all better now. And it's like, you realize they could still see you if they were there. You just can't see them coming now. Moses is in hiding. He's covered his face. He's hiding from God. And you would think, again, the way the story is being read, if you, if you were just reading cover to cover, this is it for him. I mean, his track record at this point is he's a murderer. And, oh, yeah, by the way, he's living with pagans. He looks the pagan. He acts the pagan. He's not what you would call a holy guy. If you're thinking, hey, my hope is I'm a good person. At least I'm better than my neighbor. Moses has neither of those options. Oh, yeah, by the way, I literally am a murderer. I'm the only one I know around me at the moment. He's got no chance. And when you forget the holiness of God, the next sentence that he says loses all of its shock. It would be a punch in the gut. <laughs> I have seen surely the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. You would have to think Moses probably missed the first couple of words because he's like waiting for the, and now it's time for you to die. And he's gone. No, instead you get God saying, look, I, I know my people. I know they're suffering. I know their slavery. I know their difficulty. I know their hurt and their heartache. And by the way, because I know it, it's time for me to fix it. 
I'm going to bring them out into a land of milk and honey. First time it's said. A land that's filled with such abundance that the things that are delightful to eat and drink, those holy and helpful things that would be consumed, they're just, it's going to be filled everywhere. Uh, we would say a, a land that has money growing on trees would be the equivalent today. And then comically, the land that is filled with all of these other nations that I will have to kill in order for you to have them. It's a really amusing list in this sense of God saying, look, I'm going to bring them out of Egypt and I'm going to bring them into a land that's filled with enemies. But I got it. I'm in charge. I got it. Verse 9, I hear their cry. I hear that the Egyptians are going to oppress them. In verse 10, we know this is the verse that certainly catches Moses' ear. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I will send you. Stop and pause just momentarily in the story as we think along the way to think, particularly for our own application and edification along the way. I would contend, and I don't think I'm reaching far that we as American Christians, we as God's people today, have lost a robust understanding of the transcendence, the big, the greatness of God. And I would contend we need to find that. It's part of my regular prayer routine that God would show me how big he is. Because I know the problem so much of my life is that I think of him as being far too small. I know growing up skid is part of the danger of superheroes. Is that we have Superman and we have Batman and we have Spider-Man and we have God who's just a little bit bigger and better than all of them. And you think, well, surely nobody ever thinks that. And I go, but really and truly, but do you not actually think about it that way all the time? Just in your normal kind of back of your brain interactions with God, do you not often think of him as just like you, only a little bit better? actually says a little bit about your own opinion of yourself as well. Would it not be appropriate that we as God's people mourn the fact that we don't see him as being as big as he is? That when we have those words thrown out of majesty and grandeur, that we don't really have a category in our heads for God. I mean, Purple Mountain Majesty is where most of us would probably go in that regard. Again, that's why I use nature illustrations. Maybe it would be appropriate for us uh, this Christmas season to contemplate that. The greatness, the grandeur, the bigness, the wonder of God. Because again, just like this story, the Christmas story doesn't make that much sense. If you jump directly into Luke 1, having missed all of the story before. That the great and mighty God, when it was time for him where he could have just zapped all of his people, instead he sends his son. And a helpless little baby that has to be raised by a poor Jewish woman until he will be murdered on the cross. You need both parts to understand. 
Exodus doesn't stop here, though, and this is where we get into almost a little bit of comedy, I guess, if you're going to be high literary, it's like a a dark comedy here. (laughs) God says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. This is immediately after he said he's going to cleanse the land from his enemies. And Moses, verse 11, says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? Which is literally the dumbest question we've read in this book yet. Pause and reflect momentarily on exactly who Moses is. He literally was raised in Pharaoh's house. If our current understanding of Egyptian history is correct, and I'm not saying it is, but if it is, it's his uncle, step-uncle, that is the Pharaoh at the time this is happening. He literally knows everybody in the house. He literally knows all of the customs. So when he has to go negotiate with Pharaoh, he knows all of the customs that he's going to be negotiating in. If you want somebody to be your negotiator in Iran right now, please don't pick me. I'm nothing about Iranian customs and traditions and values and ethics and how they operate. I know none. I'd be a terrible choice. That's why politicians, when they go to do that, they have all kinds of high-powered consultants behind the scenes. I have one friend who is a, uh, in special forces, and he specifically deals with this aspect in special forces. He's in psychological warfare, which is awesome. Uh, but his first task when he had to uh, get prepared for that was he had to go learn the language fluently so that he can read and speak at any given moment with any sort of no complications or challenges. And then he had to go become a historian and a sociologist to learn the culture and the history and the nature of the country that he is specializing in. So that when it comes time for him to negotiate, he knows it all. Literally, you could not be better equipped than Moses. You literally couldn't. He was raised in the schoolhouse in Pharaoh's house. He knows the land. He knows the cultures. He knows the region. We find out in Acts chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, but uh, Stephen, as he's preaching, actually gives us an additional little clue about the nature of Moses. Verse 20 in chapter 7, it says, At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. We know all this. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He knows the land. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. Moses is very elegant in his language. Now, he's going to actually fake this in just a moment. He's going to fake uh, inability. (laughs) But he's excellent in language. He's smart. He's powerful. He's able to speak well. He's able to think well. He's well-educated. He's well-equipped. It literally, uh, weirdly enough, like, humanly speaking, if you were going to pick someone to be your representative, aside from the whole murdering thing and living with pagans and being married to one thing, Moses is literally the best guy to choose. But the better part as to why it's comedy is because he's staring in the face of God and his promises. Uh, There's a part where you want to be like, brother, you're talking to a fire. The Lord God has manifested himself as a miraculous fire, and you're going to protest? I mean, he... 
four verses earlier, you were hiding for your life behind your hands. And now you're like, no, 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 God. I'm sorry, you're mistaken. (laughs) I I know you thought this was how it was going to go, but it's not. What are you doing? Who am I that I should go and bring the children out of Egypt? (laughs) Oh, you silly man. Verse 12. I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God's answer is magnificent. Obviously, it's God. Moses, you have questions, you have qualms. There's one thing you need to know. I will be with you. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be concerned I will handle it. And oh yeah, by the way, I'm going to give you a sign that's going to help you along the way to encourage you to be reminded of this fact. And you know what the sign is going to be? After you win, I'm bringing you back here. I love that promise. That's the promise of a true victor. (laughs) Hey, you know what your sign is going to be that we're going to be victorious? We're going to have victory. And then we're going to come back and celebrate God's promise to him is that he will accomplish that which is his plan. And I would suggest humbly, uh, we love to poke fun at Moses. Moses is a little bit of easy pickings right here. Do we not do this all the time? In the midst of God's commands, in the midst of God's promises, (laughs) I mean, surely that's not what you meant or not meant for me. Again, we're, we're oftentimes maybe not quite so crass about it. We're not quite so obvious. We're much more sophisticated, but do we not do this with God's commands regularly? Where God tells us, he's told us in his word, this is how we are to live. And we're like, no, God, I, I got it. I, I got it. I mean, I, I know you're God and all, but I, I got it figured out. And I'm going to humbly suggest that for the American church, this is a particular danger simply because we have lost the understanding of his greatness. I love how when you understand the greatness, you don't argue. When Moses is reminded of the greatness, he's not arguing, he's hiding. When Isaiah understands the greatness, he's not arguing, he's hiding. And then he's volunteering. When to understand the greatness of God, there's an engagement with Him on His terms in obedience, in submission, in delight, in trust. And again, when we've reduced Him to just a greater version of a superhero, sometimes His promises might seem to ring a little bit, maybe not quite so true. And when he's only this big, it makes sense that you would doubt his promises because he's so small, he's worth doubting. But when we understand the greatness and the grandeur, the size and scope of the living and true God, and when he says, I will be with you even to the end of the age, you can take it to the bank. When he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, the life to come will be way better than this one. You can take it to the bank. When he gives you his plan for living, his law for obedience, you can keep it. 
because he will reward you and bless you. You can take it to the bank. Verse 12 is a turning point in the chapter. Whereas in verse 6, you thought Moses was probably going to get killed. And then in verse 11, you would think most assuredly he's going to get killed for talking back. 12 and following puts the mercy of God on full display. That when his man should get killed, I mean, he's arguing with God. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty much textbook deserving wrath forever. God puts his mercy on full display and says, look, no, 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 no. Moses, stop talking. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be the one who fights for you. I'm going to be the one who brings my own people out of Egypt. I'm going to bring you back to this mountain where we will worship together. And then 13 and following, it's even more amazing. Look, this is how it's going to happen. You're going to go down to Egypt. You're going to gather the elders. You're going to tell them that I sent you. And I'm going to do this thing. Moses interrupts again. Um, God, when I get there, who do I say sent me? As if the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not enough. And again, this moment of just beautiful transcendence. God answers him with a name. And it's translated lots of different ways because it's not entirely translatable in any single way. It's the to be verb slightly modified. So you have I am that I am, I will be that I will be, I am the cause of all things. It's a name that is complicated because he is God. It's almost like God's answer in its own right. Just the name itself is very similar to the bush, (laughs) a fire that can't fully be understood. It's to remind you that he's bigger and greater and grander. I am the Lord and I will do this thing. I will save you, I will redeem you, and I will accomplish it according to the plan and the path that I have prescribed. And again, people of God, how much, how easily, how quickly, how often have we forgotten God's promises for his saints in his son? See, this is what we get to remember at the Christmas season. It's great to have a holiday where we can think about this. To be reminded to think about the incarnation and have a nation that tries to commercialize it to help us remember it. To be reminded that God keeps his promises. And he keeps his promises in the way that he has prescribed and not the way that I prescribe. I would never have planned for a poor Jewish boy to be the one to change the world. I would probably never have planned for the second person of the Trinity to go down across, but yet God has ordained far wiser than I. He keeps his promises according to his plan. Now, what do we do with that? Well, one is, again, labor, that hard labor, that hard work to increase our understanding of his grandeur. Two is that hard work of submitting before him. You realize submission before the Lord is not a passive process. It's not one of those things you just wake up and you're like, I'm feeling unusually submissive to God today. It's an active thing that we have to learn to cultivate. To bow the knee before him, to be reminded of his greatness, and to to 
actively seek to obey him, to cultivate that, yes, Lord, send me out, I will obey. To bow the knee. As we go from this place today, I would encourage you all to spend those fleeting moments of the afternoon thinking about how are you not bowing the knee? Here you have the greatness of God and the mercy of God put on glorious display in chapter 3, and yet so many of us live in either open rebellion or quiet defiance. And we poke fun at Moses when we're doing ten times worse. Might it be appropriate that we confess our sins, for he is faithful and just to forgive us, our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because the plan that is being hinted at here is ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. That God's people would not just be brought out of slavery in Egypt, but would be brought out of slavery to sin. Would not just conquer the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, but would conquer sin and hell and death and sorrow and all things unwholesome would be defeated, not just by God, but also in his saints through the victory that is accomplished in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. I do pray, oh God, give us a a bigger understanding of who you are. Forgive us for our small minds. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.